Why are you making a film? It is to see what people think and to have a communal experience once that film is foisted upon the public. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Listen, I would love to say we are a well-oiled machine here on Cinephile, but listen, it's a work in progress. It's organic. Organic, one of these big buzzwords, by the way, which I think I despise. I used to say it was okay. Now I'm like, no, no, I don't like organic food. I don't like organic processes or processes, as I would say. So speaking of organic, that open there, I don't even know what I'm saying. This is episode five, and it's like, oh, it's a communal experience. It's so foisted upon it. I don't think that I'm particularly highfalutin. I really don't. I don't think that I'm preachy or self-indulgent when i hear that quote i go god how annoying is that guy who would want to listen to this podcast it's a communal experience get out of here verk i just want to go watch a nice popcorn movie are you saying we should change the open yeah it's going to be changed for next time but for episode five of cinephile i'm adnan verk it's great to have you with us that is my man dan stanzik somebody tweeted they go hey what about what's with this stanzik on i go let's make this very clear without stanzik doing this there is no cinephile so i will take zero criticism of my guy the guy said stanzik he goes well i don't like his opinions what is he like 25 i go he's 30 he's wise beyond his years and once again he's doing this free so if, if he says you know what i'm tired of this this, this backlash against stanzik he's out Screw that guy. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Uh, we got lots coming up today, including Dennis Leary. He was very funny, very entertaining. He's got the best Titanic story you're ever going to hear. I was a huge fan of Rescue Me. He talks about that wonderful show and Michael J. Fox's appearances on that show. He also gets into Wag the Dog, which is an underrated movie. which was very much ahead of its time. All that coming up. Plus, we'll do our usual three words. Got some good ones today. Actors showcase Jack Nicholson. We're going to the, the Legends Division. I like this out of Stanzik. Uh, plus, of course, says story as well. So let's get it going here first off with new movies out of the gate. The Phenom. My man, Paul Giamatti and Ethan Hawke. Johnny Simmons is the cast for this one. And it's, I think, one of the best movies of this summer. Now, granted, I think this summer has been a little bit disappointing so far. But the phenom is is all that it is cracked up to be. Uh, the story is quite straightforward. It's about a baseball pitcher named Johnny. Uh, Janet, Johnny Simmons is the actor playing him. Throws 100 miles an hour, and he's a phenom. Absolute stud. Uh, but he's crumbling under the pressure right now emotionally and psychologically coming from those around him. And that is his father, Ethan Hawke, uh, who is totally channeling De Niro in This Boy's Life. Or if you listen to this podcast, Will Arnett had a great Santini reference, which is Robert Duvall playing a military dominating father. Either of those options work. Just go back and watch De Niro in This Boy's Life or Duvall in The Great Santini. And I think Ethan Hawke used those as prep because he's that guy. Uh, he said that – I read an interview and Hawke said I knew how to play this guy because I knew someone like this growing up. A buddy of mine was a great athlete and his dad was just like this. He goes, even the hair. I knew to go with the brush cut and the tattoos and the uh, the jean shorts and the shirt open. He goes, like, pure – Redneck, And the beauty of Ethan Hawke's performance is that you can play this guy as a real stereotype, this vile, emotionally abusive father, physically abusive as well, and just go, all right, he's a stereotype and that's it. But but Hawke plays him. Listen, he's obviously a horrible guy and unrepentant, but he shows that he's not just being a jerk to his son. He actually believes this is the way to succeed. There's one scene where Simmons is at an empty ballpark and Hawke happens to show up and he goes, listen, I saw your body language the other day. It just wasn't good. Like, think about Dave Stewart. Think about Roger Clemens. Think about Bob Gibson. Like, those guys, they already had won the game when they stepped on the mound because it was all about intimidation and that glare. And so he's trying to instill in his son this type of competitive spirit and the zeal for winning. And yet, obviously, his method is horrible because his kid is, is struggling. And it's not that he's overly sensitive. It's not that today's generation is getting babied. It's the fact that his dad's a world-class jerk. And when you've got this kind of pressure on yourself – 
it's incredibly tough to overcome. And there's one scene Johnny Simmons is talking to his girlfriend. He just goes, do you have any idea how much pressure I'm under? And, like, you can tell she has no idea. She's like, okay, you're a great pitcher. You can throw a ball 100 miles an hour. And he's like, do you, do you know, like, what I'm going through every time I go out on the mound between scouts and my dad? And his mom's in the picture, but she's she's you only see her briefly. I mean, she seems like a loving mom but not strong enough to stand up to the father. So that's obviously not helping out the kid. So enter Paul Giamatti. He plays a psychiatrist very kindly. Giamatti's on a run here of psychiatrist slash managers. If you'll recall, he was the manager and straight out of Compton uh, who ended up being a bad guy because he's stealing money from all these guys. He was a psychiatrist in Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson biopic, which I really enjoyed, uh, with Paul Dano playing Brian Wilson as a kid, and then John Cusack played Brian Wilson as an elder person. Again, Giamatti was an evil shrink. This time I'm happy to say he's a shrink, but he's actually a kind one and supportive, and uh, he really is trying to deal with exercises and empathy. When he's sitting there with Johnny Simmons, they're watching baseball together, and Simmons is naturally skeptical. He's like, what are we doing here? Like, we're watching tape? Like, you're my pitching coach? And he's like, no, I just want to know, like, what are you thinking here? You know, what, what's going through your mind here? And I think that... This happens a lot more, I think, in pro sports than people realize. A lot of teams employ sports psychologists, especially when a guy's struggling. Like You think famously when Knobloch or Steve Sachs before that couldn't make throws to first base. Mackie Sasser, the catcher, couldn't throw the ball back to, to the pitcher's mail. Like, there's weird stuff that happens, particularly, I feel like, in baseball. And that's where they have these guys. And Giamatti's backstory isn't just that he's a kind psychiatrist. He's got some some skeletons in his past as well. So it's a really absorbing film, a very atypical baseball movie. I'm going to say maybe five minutes of baseball action, maybe tops, not even. I think like you see him on the rubber, you see him practicing, but like actual game action, maybe a, maybe a minute. Like there's not much. It's all about what happens behind the scenes. 85 minutes, you know, I love short movies, so there's another reason to go watch it. Maybe tough to find in your local theater. I don't know where it's playing uh, here in the Northeast, but it's on DirecTV, which I find is a really good outlet now to watch a lot of movies that don't have wide release. You just eight bucks, you watch on DirecTV. So the Phenom, uh, excellent movie. Stanzik, I hope that you watch it. I, I, hopefully we can get a screener at some point. Do you have DirecTV? Is this an option in the Stanzik? I was home? just going to say, you're like, it's really easy on DirecTV if you have DirecTV. If you don't, then where are you going to see it? Yeah, because it's, it's one of these movies, it's definitely one of these New York, LA, it gets in the major markets. If you're in Nebraska right now, shout out to Omaha if you're listening. Uh, make the drive to go watch the Phenom. Just go ahead and to take the a, theater in yeah. Iowa that you went to. Yeah, exactly. Iowa. Shout out to Iowa. Five dollars and twenty three cents to go see Free State of Jones, which is the next movie I'm reviewing. Uh, the movies are five bucks before noon on a Saturday. That is unheard of. I walked in. She goes five twenty three, and I'm like, "Is it nineteen eighty five? Like what? What time warp did I just walk into? Like where am I right now?" Uh, sadly, the film was worth about five dollars and twenty three cents, and that's in today's money because it was. Very disappointing. Uh, as I tweeted, it is a ponderous slog. Matthew McConaughey is drenched in sweat and nobility. You go into one of those movie stands, and you see the trailer, and you just go, okay, I got it. There's going to be lengthy speechifying. It's going to be awfully leaden. It's banal subject matter. And it's a story that if you read the book and you're a bibliophile, you're going to go, this is a rousing story. This was a guy who had an uprising uh, in Mississippi, a Confederate soldier, ended up leading a slave revolt, very important character, ended up having a white wife and then a black wife as well, fathered uh, kids from both sides. Oh, very interesting story. And the movie, you go, none of the conflicts are going to be there. It's going to be very simple, very black and white. And and that's exactly what this movie is. Then why do you go see it? If I see an awful trailer, I'm like, I'm never going to see that. We've got a podcast. I'm trying to watch new movies, get people into this thing. To be perfectly frank, plus I was in Omaha, Nebraska. There wasn't a whole lot going on. They don't have the indie movies like The Phenom playing there, which is why I had to go see Free State of Jones. Trust me, no podcast. I'm not in Omaha. There's no way I'm seeing Free State of Jones. But 
we had some time to kill. We're still waiting on Maple Leafs for both of those. So the Phenom, I'm going to give four Maple Leafs. We go four to four Maple Leafs just because of the fact, like I said, it's a unique sports film and the acting is so great. All three of them. I'm obviously giving love to Giamatti and Ethan Hawke. Well, with him, games, with Giamatti in a film, that's a guaranteed three Maple Leafs, right? You know, there's somebody tweeted that he goes, is that guaranteed one and a half? Three sounds excessive. Probably guaranteed two. So just the fact he's in the movie. So like, I'm like, all right, Giamatti's in it. Great. Two stars right away. <laughs> Oh, well, as soon as you just see the name in the credits, I'm like, oh, yeah, I love this film. It's, it's already rousing me. It's already getting my embers flowing. So two automatically for Giamatti, who we're going to get on Cinephile at some point. Josh Drew, our talent booker, is is fighting valiantly here to make it happen. He's in production, I believe, season two of Billions. So in the fall, we're going to try to get Giamatti. And I'll ask him, I'll go, hey, what do you think about the fact they give you two Maple Leafs right out of the gate? How good does that make you feel? Four Maple Leafs for the Phenom, one and a half for Freestina Jones. Now, you're going to be upset here, Stanza. Continuing this theme of why do I see these movies, again, I was in Omaha, didn't have much to do, and we have a podcast. People like hearing new releases. Went and saw The Shallows. Blake Lively's shark film. I'll tell you what, that's a reason to go see a movie right there, though. Blake Lively. And let's be honest. I understand our target audience. I'm a good, From all the tweets that I get, it looks like you're 95% male. Uh, you're all about 18 to 34. So you know what? For this demographic, go out and go see The Shallows. Because you know what? Blake Lively is a you know surfer girl in her bathing suit for 90 minutes, 95 minutes. Uh, go ahead. Hey, it's summer, man. It's, have a good time. She looks great. Uh, and the shark's pretty good, too. I mean, listen, this is a shark film. We're not looking for a complex narrative. We're not looking for anything too strenuous. This is Blake Lively in a bathing suit. Oh, my God, there's a shark. What am I going to do to get out of this thing? Flare guns. We've got some decent cinematography, a rather bizarre cameo from this guy. I don't want to you know, give away secrets, but listen, it's no Jaws. But I thought for what it was, a shark film, a genre movie, Blake Lively, I'll give it three Maple Leafs. Right? That's staggering to you. Think about this. I gave the Michael Moore film two and a half, Where to Invade Next, which is provocative and smart, and I'm penalizing him because it's not as good as his other work. And I just gave The Shallows with Blake Lively, which is a shark movie, Three Maple Leafs. I think your standards in this summer heat have dipped considerably. You think I'm being too generous here? I haven't seen the film. I have no (laughs) intentions to see the film. Yes. Three out of four. (laughs) Staggering. Maybe I just really like shark movies. And she is that hot. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's all that this comes down to. Uh, the last movie that I'll be reviewing is called Doc and Daryl. Thanks to those here at ESPN Films for passing it along to me. Uh, it is the story of Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. It's the latest 30 for 30. It is premiering Wednesday, June 14th at 9 o'clock Eastern. Judd Apatow, the great comedic director, is actually the co-director of this film, which may lend the fact why you get some celebrity cameos in here. John Stewart is featured prominently. I know he's a huge Mets fan. Bill Maher makes an appearance. I'm assuming Apatow reached out to these guys. Did hey, you notice Bill Maher it says he's a part owner of the Mets? Yeah. Did I, you know I, that? I was going to say, I mean, all you want to hear about is the Wilpons and how broke the Mets are. I'm like, Bill Maher should be chipping in here. Real time with Bill Maher. He loves the Mets. Who knew he was that big a fan? Uh, Stanzik has also seen the film, as you can tell by the fact he jumped in there. I encourage him to watch it as a baseball fan and, and certainly somebody uh, who can appreciate with Doc and Daryl. A little young for you. I mean, it was in the 80s, really. But you you obviously were aware of their reputations by the time you started following Absolutely. I mean, I would for younger listeners, I would say they are the Strasburg and Bryce Harper of yeah. the 80s, but with playoff success. Yeah, I think that's an accurate comparison because both those guys highly tattered. I mean, I remember Gooden. Uh, I was born in 78, so 85 when he had that 1.53 ERA and he was just, I mean, 84 was a great rookie of the year season, 17 and 8, uh, like a high 2.80 ERA, something like 2.84, I want to say. 85, like, he was just ridiculous, like 25 and 3, and it was like, oh, my God, this guy's like Gibson in 68. 
And then 86, when they won the World Series, he actually wasn't as good. He was still very good. But they say in the doc, even Keith Hernandez says, he goes, well, he wasn't as great as he'd been, like, superhuman the first two years. And then the World Series, actually, he was disappointing. He actually matched up with Clemens in Game 2, and the Red Sox won that game because they went up to it in the series. And then Doc again got roughed up in Game 5. And that, you know, the film obviously explains good enough to that point, but then really details his decline. The fact he missed the World Series parade. And he was really dipping hard into cocaine and heavy drinking, and he makes no apologies. And the best thing about the film is it's really honest and unadulterated when it comes to what these guys went through. And unlike a great film like O.J. Made in America, also ESPN Films, 30 for 30, you know, you have these guys giving their first-person account. As great as the O.J. documentary was, and I highly recommend it, five parts, all nine hours. Obviously, you don't have a lot of O.J. in his own words, certainly not now reflecting what he's done because he's in the big house. You've got Strawberry telling his story. You've got Doc Gooden telling their stories, and, and Gooden's and both those guys have always been incredibly honest. I mean, if you want to criticize them for um, throwing away their careers and unfortunately letting drug abuse and alcohol abuse overwhelm them, I suppose that's your right if you're a moralist. But I'm of the type to say, listen, these guys face the demons. They are very honest with what they've done. They've tried um, being drug counselors and rehabilitation and trying others, and I don't know how you can't have uh, at least sympathy for what they've gone through. But Gooden, yeah, once he started dipping in the nose candy, then he got an off, uh, off the field issue in Tampa. You see his downfall. Strawberry was a guy long and lean. They said just like Ted Williams. They say that. I mean, how does that, think of the phenom now, the other film I reviewed, a young star with hype. Someone starts telling you you're the next Ted Williams. How does that not uh, affect your psyche a little bit? You're going to think all of a sudden you're going to hit 500 home runs and be the greatest hitter who ever lived. And Strawberry would hit tape measure shots. Like he was awesome for the Mets when they called him up. But again, unfortunately, drugs and alcohol abuse undermined Straw. And he did have both those guys had interesting second acts. You'll remember Strawberry went to the Dodgers and was productive, but you know never matched the, the Ruthian Heights he should have been. He should have been a Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. Never was. Uh, but did get a second chance, or even a third chance, I guess you could say, with the Yankees and George Steinbrenner. He talks about how George was very kind to him and benevolent, and he was always appreciative of that. Um, you know, I had overcame cancer and all those other uh, drug issues, which were prior to that. Doc Gooden ended up going to the Yankees as well, pitching a no-hitter. So he had one great moment late in his career. But again, never matched up to what it should have been. Makes me think of the Bronx tale, a Bronx tale, the Chaz Palmetary dinner movie where he says there's nothing so bad in life as wasted potential. And uh, that's exactly what these two guys are all about. So Doc and Daryl, I'll give it three and a half Maple Leafs. Clearly, if you're a baseball fan, especially the 80s, you'll really like this movie. Um, but it's great the fact that they actually meet at a diner. They 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 share stories again. They reconcile a little bit. So I enjoyed it. Stancic, how about you? I enjoyed it as well. I was just going to say at the tail end there, it has a very, the subject matter is obviously not comedic, but it has a very... <laughs> Uh, comedians and cars getting coffee type feel the way it's shot. Nice. That's a good call, especially the fact you're right. They're meeting in a coffee shop, and it's very casual and very less You're seeing, there. like, the checks and coffee getting poured <laughs> and pies getting cut. Uh, by the way, have you watched the new season of Comedians and Cars getting coffee? Apparently uh, yeah. John Oliver's on. I, I cannot wait. To, I, I don't even know why we're doing this right now. We should stop taping this. Go watch John Oliver if it's available right now on Comedians and Cars getting coffee. I love that show. Picked up Seinfeld, new book called Seinfeldia. Just hit bookstores yesterday. Uh, Behind-the-scenes stories of Seinfeld, 270 pages. I got a flight to Cali. That is an easy read. But as far as the latest films, once again, The Phenom, Four Maple Leafs, Free State of Jones, One and a Half Maple Leafs, The Shallows, A Generous, Three Maple Leafs, and Doc and Daryl coming out Thursday, or Wednesday, July 14th, 9 o'clock Eastern on ESPN. The latest 30 for 30, Doc and Daryl gets Three and a Half Maple Leafs. What a blast to be joined by Dennis Leary here on Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. The, the beauty, Dennis, because you're doing the car wash today here at ESPN. You're talking to Mike and Mike and Rasil and Canelli's different shows. A little more tame. Here we can see the Dennis Leary that we all know and love. So you can just let it fly here, just so you know. Well, I'd like to say that Mike Greeny is an <laughs> not watching any of my 
he invites me on his show, right? You know, Mike and Mike in the morning, which is one of my, that's, by the way, I'm a sports nut. Of course, yeah. Huge so hockey I, fan. I have to do Howard Stern on like Wednesday. And I, you know, Howard doesn't understand. Like, I don't listen, my kids and my wife, right. they're Howard Stern fanatics. I don't listen to Howard Stern or anything else. I listen to Mike in the, Mike in the morning and Sports Center Radio. Right. Because, first of all, I flip between those two and, like, an NHL network or baseball. You know what I mean? I'm getting right. my sports information. Totally. Especially if I'm driving. Right. So, you know, he was the one who called me and said, you got to come back on the show. And I'm like, okay, great. And while I was on the show, He's I said. a big fan of sex, drugs, and rock yeah, and roll. Yeah, so he mentioned sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I go, so uh, what do you think so far of the season? And he's like, uh, I haven't seen any of it. I said, what about last year? He's like, I haven't seen the show. I'm like, dude. But, yeah, how? Yeah. I was going to say, if you're not up on season two, maybe. Yeah, maybe. So, Because I did this with Rescue Me. Um, I'm originally from Toronto, so we used to get Rescue Me on Showcase. It was a little bit behind the FX season. Oh, okay. So I'd always get worried. I couldn't read Entertainment Weekly or Premiere. I'm like, oh, I can't get spoilers. So the first ever episode I saw of Rescue Me was an incredible episode. It was the last episode of season two where your son gets hit by the car. Yeah. And then uh, Amanda Roth, fellow Canadian, slaps you in that scene. I'm like, oh, my God. This is Dennis Leary I've never seen. It was incredibly powerful, that entire episode. I'm like, i got to go back and watch all this. And the beauty of Rescue Me is this. You have your persona and who you are, which is a really funny, angry guy, and you've always utilized that. But to me, Rescue Me was great acting, period. Like, the drama that you had in that show, and obviously based in reality and the appreciation respect that you had for firefighters, which you can feel throughout that episode, the fact it was so timely, the fact it was after 9-11. Like, I was always happy you'd get nominated for the Emmy, but it still bothers me. You and Peter <laughs> Tolan never actually broke through and won for one of those. Well, Peter won. For uh, writing, didn't he? he went, no, he went twice for um, Larry, he went for Larry Sanders, Larry show, Sanders Shandling, and yeah. Murphy Brown. Right. That's right. <laughs> so Peter's got two. Right. Um, yeah, we got nominated. We were. You'd get nominated every year for best. We, actor. Went, we went one for ten. The only guy who won an Emmy. Michael he, J. Fox. Michael J. Fox. And yeah. even our our DP got nominated for, you know, DP awards and never right. won. Uh, I got nominated for all these Golden Globes. And the <laughs> only guy that won a Golden Globe or an Emmy for our show was Michael J. Fox. Now, listen. He was hilarious, by the I way. Know. If you haven't seen the Michael J. Fox Rescue Me episodes. He yeah. was great on Kirby Enthusiasm, too, and obviously you're friends with him, but that's what's great about Michael J. Fox. He takes this whole Parkinson's thing and completely subverts it. Yeah. I don't want any sympathy. I don't want any Dude, f- by the way, the, I got, the I got, role he played on your show was I hilarious. I have to tell you that we... He was an a- Yeah, we wrote that role. Uh, I didn't have to convince him, but I said, listen, dude, it is a challenge because you're basically a guy who's paralyzed. You're still, you know, you're in a wheelchair and you have to be very still. Right. But also he's an a- <laughs> I told Mike, I said, listen, dude, here's the thing, because Rescue Me and the same thing on Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, like... Right. Uh, you know, when we write them, we're like, listen, here's the, here's the things that have to stay. But you can, for the actors, you can get away with whatever you want. You can improvise your way around. And it, the actors always make it better. Right. Um, so I told Michael, take what, the elements of the story and you can improvise. And he was attracted to that idea. Yeah. I said, you can improvise as, an, as the dark side of this character, which is, you know, really kind of mean, pissed off, bitter guy. Mm-hmm. And also on the comedy side. So a lot of the stuff that ended up being so great about that part was stuff that Mike brought to it. The first day that Mike shot on Rescue Me, none of the guys in the crew had worked with Mike on my crew on Rescue Me. And uh, Mike came in, and I've known Mike for a long time. So I know, uh, you know, as much as you can know about uh, Mike. Right. And he's uh, a huge hockey fan. You yeah, play hockey, it, all that stuff. He's a, ter- he's a really funny guy. He's got a very dark sense of humor, and right. he's incredibly smart. And he's also a great dramatic actor, which people forget Right? People forget to that. To my grave, I say casualties of war. Casualties of movie. war. Okay? Right. So he came in, and his first speech was a big dramatic speech at the, at the, in a bar, at the end of which he slams down this shot glass, and he scares the <laughs> He's talking about what happened to him yeah. and why he's paralyzed. Right. And at the end of that scene, I mean, it's just straight drama. Yeah. And 
I said, you want to shoot your side first? And he said, yes. We shot Mike's side first. And he said, just shoot me two cameras at the same time because I'm really, I want to be able to pour myself into this and not have to do it more than once, you know? Yeah. And he went into that. He came into the set and everybody's like, hey, Mike, hi, Mike, hi, Mike. And they're all meeting him. You know, a couple guys take pictures with him and he's Mike, you know? Right. Funny. And, and he sat down and we set action and he did that scene. I'm telling you, as an actor on the other side of the scene with him, I was sitting across the table. Two things went through my mind. One, he's nailing the out of this number two this scene's going to get stolen from me because mike is so good right, <laughs> right? that's what i was thinking yeah. when he slammed the thing down he actually kind of scared me and then right. he slammed his fist down on the table right they called cut the way the the crew the makeup people they looked at mike completely differently because he was in such a foul mood from doing the monologue right and he went outside to smoke a cigarette and just kind of calmed down and everybody was like well, he's he's really good, and I'm like, yeah, he's a little scary. You know what I mean? He's a little scary. <laughs> he was amazing. I love the fact that he was nominated one. And hearing that story, you can see a guy like him how he'd be so into it. But again, you're giving a lot of respect to him. I know Michael J. Fox is a great actor, but I think a lot of that was Rescue Me because I think it's like I said, it was not only a time capsule, Dennis, but all those great shows we started to see on cable, right? The Sopranos, yeah, and Breaking well, Bad. So like, Rescue Me was was but, I'm telling you, it was a forerunner to a lot of that. I know, anti hero. If you're going to paint the picture, and I'll tell you, I mean, I remember it exactly. Because I knew Gandolfini. Right. And uh, I remember I was doing a show called uh, The Job. Uh, oh, yeah. The, Peter Tolan as well. Yeah, ABC. ABC, which they canceled, thank God. Because that's, that's what led to Rescue Me. But, but it was an underrated show. It was a good show. I thought they, it was they, funny. They, they just didn't know what to make of it. Um, but anyways, when that show was happening, Ted Demi was an old friend of mine. Uh, the ref. The ref. Uh, right. Right. Guy directed the ref. He said, hey, listen, man. Have you heard about this thing that they're thinking of doing over at HBO? That Gandolfini's the star. Gandolfini's a Terrific actor, by the way. Right. At that point, he was just a character actor. Not a lot of people knew who right. he was. Right, get shorty, some other stuff. Yeah, he was terrific. Yeah. And he goes, they're doing a, 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 a mob family drama with Gandolfini playing the head guy. And now my first reaction was, wow, he's going to kill that role. That would be a fantastic role for him. Mm-hmm. But Jimmy was – Jimmy was a not – he wasn't Tony Soprano. If you saw him in other roles, yeah. he was a very sweet, sort of a gentle big bear of a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I knew that would be a great part for him. Right. So by the time the – uh, job got canceled. So now you're talking like two, it was after uh, 9-11. So it was 2002, that winter when we got canceled, um, the beginning of 2002. Um, by then, the Sopranos had taken off. Right. And everybody, and The Shield came on FX, oh, yeah, if yeah, you remember, Mac, right? Yeah, right. And so The Shield established, The Shield was from John Langreff and the guys at FX, and they were establishing kind of a beachhead like, and it's not just HBO anymore. You can do it some other places. So The Shield, I don't know if you watched that show. I did. It was oh. very intense. Okay, so CCH Vic Mackey, that and, character. Know. Right. Uh, just unbelievable. But this is the thing. Because your guy in Rescue Me was a, a noble character who's fighting demons. And I love the theme of how he's you know haunted by ghosts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Vic Mackey's just an amoral bastard. Yeah. But did you watch the whole series? No, you know what? I thought it started to lose its way a little bit towards the end. Because oh, it has one of the greatest endings. Well, that's what everyone says to of me. They go, all time. If all the people get pissed about the Sopranos finale, they go, the Shield finale might be as good as it gets as far as shows elevating. When you watch the end of the Shield, you go, like, I, I remember looking at it and going, oh, my God, how'd they think of that? That would be the last thing I would ever think of. And it's the perfect ending. And by the way, I love the Sopranos so much. It's my oh, favorite television show of all time. Amazing. Gandolfini was extraordinary. So was Edie Falco. A lot of people sure, on that Michael show. Imperioli. Ugh. So uh, I didn't care about the ending because I loved the show so much. That show, I had to watch that show. I couldn't even do it on tape. I had to watch every <laughs> Sunday night at 9 o'clock. Right. Like it was live TV. And my friends would go like, dude, what are you doing? I'm like, I just, I oh. feel like The Sopranos happen at 9 o'clock on Sunday nights. That's what I'm watching. Event TV. Yeah. Initial, initial thought when you first, weren't you mad when it cut to black or did you just kind of go, 
No, here's what happened. Give me the process. I had to. We were shooting Rescue Me. Right. So uh, I had to go to work early the next morning. It was on a Sunday night, if you as you remember. Yeah. Um, I was alone in my apartment. Saw the ending. Saw it cut to black, and I went. <laughs> my TV went out. My cable no, went out. For a second, I was like my. <laughs> and then I went. Oh no no no! I went. Oh cool. Go to bed. Yeah. Get up in the morning. I go to work. And my partner and a bunch of the other guys that work for us, they're all huge Soprano freaks. And I'm like, God, first thing in the morning, guys, how great was that ending? They're like, that ending sucked. It ruined the show. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, right. all right, whatever. I was just so happy to have had the show. Right. Um, and then Gandolfini, uh, you know, after that, he did a, a couple of things. There's a couple of movies. Uh, enough said with Julia Lloyd Dreyfus. Oh, my was God. Amazing. And then there's um, the, the Drop with oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Tom um, Hardy. It's yes. fantastic. Right. And he did a play. Um, called Gods of Carnage on Broadway, where right. he was playing closer to the real Jim Gandolfini. He played this kind of guy. His wife has him sort of uh, wrapped around her finger, and he's kind of a big, mousy guy, right. and he's funny as hell, and he's very sensitive. I remember they adapted it into a movie, and the movie probably yeah. wasn't as good planned. He didn't do the movie. Yeah, he didn't yeah, do he it. Didn't do Christoph Waltz. They, right. they should have tried to get him for the movie. He was right. brilliant. He got nominated. I think he won the Tony for that. But Pretty sure, yeah. When I went to see him in that, as I, I, it, it made me start to hate him because I knew how great he was. But I was sitting in the audience the first night, and I was like, "I really, I kind of hate this guy. There's nothing he can't do. Like, right. I, he wasn't a song and dance guy. No, I know he won't be doing musicals, but but he was point. so brilliant as an actor. I'm going, this is ridiculous. Well, the Sopranos. I mean, you're right. You can oh, do like the, the range of emotion there because he's it's this guy who's trying to take care of his family, and that he's trying to run this this mafia family. He's got pain which he needs to exercise. With yeah, but you know what? him and them because we're here to talk about my show. Oh, you're I just right, realized. Right. I was we're about to say, well, this isn't nearly enough Dennis yeah, Leary conversation. Yeah, yeah, you know what? We should be talking about my show You're now. very generous here as far as giving props to other guys. Yeah. We'll get into sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, in just a second. But I want to mention Wag the Dog, which is such an underrated movie. Oh, my God. Part of. Yeah. I think that's another movie that was predicting the future, the fact we're going into a war yeah. and false pretenses. Yeah. How funny. Mamet wrote the script. Yeah. You're with De Niro, Dustin Hoffman. What was that experience like? Well, it was great because I did another Mammoth uh, movie that was based on a play, uh, one of his first plays, Lake Boat, and um, and it was it's actually George Went was in that one. Yeah, it was a great cast: Peter Falk, uh, myself. Oh my, I'm gonna forget guys. JJ uh, Johnston. All the all the all great Mammoth great. actors. Joe Montana directed it. Right. Um, and that we we stuck to every word because Mammoth and Joe backed him up. Mammoth wanted to, the movie to be exactly the same words as the play, right. um, and that can be tough. Because it doesn't allow the actors to stretch a lot in terms of what they can bring to it. But I still love the experience because Peter Falk was in it. Yeah, yeah. And I was a huge Columbo fan. Right. And uh, I wanted to work with a lot of guys in that cast. Mm -hmm. But Falk was the main reason I went into it. And I had a a scene where it was just me and Falk. It was fantastic. Right. Anyways, when I did Wag the Dog, Barry Levinson said uh, De Niro's partner was producing it. And they said, listen, we want to take a lot of the stuff that's in the script and keep it. We also want to have. We're going to shoot multiple cameras all the time, and we're going to improvise. So we're going to we're going to have. Oh, I think it was a week of rehearsal before we start shooting, where the main characters are just going to be in a room with Barry, mm-hmm. and we're going to improvise, and we're going to record it. Right. And then they would transcribe that. And as we were going through that process, you know, I'm with De Niro and Hoffman. Uh, Bob, I knew for for a number of years before that, but I'd never met Dustin, and I'd never worked with either one of them. So I was a little intimidated. I'm Dustin's right-hand man, and Dustin was – every day he had like a different voice and then a different approach. He was sending up Robert Evans was the story. Well, it didn't, was... it didn't start that way. Okay. It started with – it was weird. Uh, 
the first couple of days I was worried. I was like, yesterday he was doing a certain kind of thing, and now he's doing a whole different thing. And I'm supposed to be improvising with him as his right-hand man, and I couldn't get a key. Yeah. And uh, at one point I went outside to smoke, and uh, De Niro was walking out with me, and I said, what's going on? And he went, <laughs> I don't know. And I'm like, if you don't know. And then the next day, Dustin came in with yeah. the haircut and the glasses, and we all went, oh, he's doing Robert Evans. Right. Those who know, Robert Evans, legendary Hollywood person in the 70s, the godfather of Chinatown. And from that moment on, right. it was, I'm telling you, I have to go back and watch the movie. I haven't seen it since it came it's out. It's hysterical. There are, there are, you're great in it because, again, I can feel like a lot of it's improvised. Well, a lot of it's improvised, and they had two or three cameras going at a time. And I'm just telling you, when I first saw it, I went like, wow, there's whole chunks of that movie that were completely improvised. Right. Either before we did the scripted version or after the scripted version, sometimes it was just – there. Were, I can't describe it. It was like being uh, – playing Major League Ball with Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron. Oh, yeah. I mean like these guys are hitting – Grand slams, right? And they're hitting. They want you to like set them up, right? You know, or catch the ball and throw it back to home plate. It was crazy every day, every day. You know, and and uh, it was it was terrific. And actually, the, it's funny how the movie has had so much resonance. It's still no being question. played now because of the because of the political situation. <laughs> you know, no about it. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Right now, Dennis Leary's show. You do rescue me, which is by the way, that's another movie. We got nominated for a bunch of Oscars and Golden yeah, We didn't win anything. Mamet and Hillary Henkin, I think, called they got, they got nominated. Uh, nominated. Dustin, Dustin got nominated. Uh, Levin said, I think, was. I think our DP got nominated. Um, and then we got all we got nominated for a million things and we won nothing. But I, I don't it care. It was 97. So 97. Was, yeah. English patient was 96. I can't remember off the head, but yeah. 97 was. Something, I can't you remember. got robbed either way, whatever it was. Whatever. Titanic, of course. Who cares? Stanzik, all the way. Yeah, who cares? What would you rather watch right now? Wag the dog or Titanic? I saw Titanic and I fell asleep, right? <laughs> Get this. So I go, I don't want to see the movie. My kids were small and my kids were taking a nap. I'm, my wife's like, don't come home now. You're just going to wake them up. They'll get all excited. Yeah. So I'm walking. I'm, I just bought a giant tuna sub on Broadway in New York. I'm like, I, 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 oh, Titanic. The show's starting right now. Like, I, I don't want to see it, but what the hell? It'll right. kill three hours. Right. I go in. I eat the sub. <laughs> like the first 15 minutes of the movie. Fall asleep. Right. <laughs> and I thought, I didn't like the movie. It wasn't meant for me. In the sure. beginning, I'm like, this is not meant for me. I, I fall asleep. I'm in the middle. It's sold that house. I'm in the middle of a row. It was the only seat left when I came in with the sub. They were already giving me dirty looks when I was walking in. Right. And while I was eating it, they were like, shh, shh. <laughs> so I fall asleep. I wake up. And what's his name? Uh, DiCaprio <laughs> is floating on a, you know, uh, a ice piece of ice. <laughs> right. Iceberg. And, yeah, iceberg. And I don't know why. It struck me as the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And and I started laughing out loud, like like the loudest. That I, I didn't mean to. It just it was almost like I was at home. Right. And and I, people went. People were like shh shh. And I looked at everybody, everybody, men and women, are all crying. And I was like, that made me laugh harder. Right. So now I'm like, I gotta leave. So I get up to leave, and I'm like, excuse me, excuse me. People are like, people were actually kicking me in the shins, and I'm and it's making me. I'm laughing my balls up. I get to the aisle, and I walk outside. And when I get outside, I'm laughing so hard, I have to bend over and just like. I'm really – I'm cackling. I'm almost puking. That's how hard I'm laughing. And I look up, and there's 200 people in line who are staring at me because they're going in to see Titanic, the next show. And I'm like, oh, it's hilarious. <laughs> James Cameron with the funniest movie of the year. Oh, man. Speaking of hilarious, The Ref is a really underrated Christmas movie. I, I think that's a great companion piece with Bad Santa. You, yes. Kevin Spacey. I think that's a cult classic, and I hope that you tell me that that's grown with – like people – Talk oh, yeah. about it with you, right? Because oh, yeah, yeah. I don't think at the time people appreciate it. Well, it uh, it's just 
It's crazy. <laughs> it's uh, you know, when, when we made it, we said, we're making the anti It's a Wonderful Life. So we're right. basically making a movie that um, very few people are going to want to see after we make it because it's so dark. But that audience that sees it will probably love it. Yeah. And now it's like 22 years. How, long, how many years ago? Twenty. The ref was 94, yeah. So it's 22 years ago, right? Right. And Every single Christmas, it gets, you know, oh, yeah, it's, it's on crazy. Like, it's all over the, I've been in like other countries and you're like, right. they show the ref over here. Cause it's the, it is the antithesis. They, it's funny how bad Santa and, um, and, uh, the ref became like, they run them, uh, on cable networks all over the world at Christmas time because the other good networks, the nice networks are running. It's a wonderful life. Right. And maybe, you know, uh, white Christmas. Right. Right. Bing you Crosby, know. whatever you want. Yeah. Just some nice, sweet so stuff. So I'm glad cause I really love making that movie, man. That was a blast. Hilarious movie. Sex, Drugs, Rock and Roll. you got to check out Dennis Leary's show. As I said, I picked it up late, but but again, I'm, I'm going to go back and see it in sequence. But the, the premise of it is this. So Dennis and his buddies, a rock and roll band. What, what I'm curious is this, because again, it has that mix of, of humor and drama and you're bouncing your family, et cetera. But 80s and 90s bands, is there anyone that you, as I'm assuming, you're a rock and roll guy, is there anybody that you were basing it off of or friends that you kind no, of lean on? Or yeah, it was based on and a musician. I had a bunch of friends when I was a teenager. Uh, I went to Emerson College in Boston, which is a performing arts school. Mm. I was there for acting and writing. Yeah. And I had a bunch of friends who were, you know, uh, musicians. Right. Really talented guys. And they were in some involved in one of the theater groups I was involved with, which was the comedy workshop up there, which mm. is still there to this day. Right. And um, But gradually, because they were music guys, they started to leave school early because they got offers to be in bands. Mm-hmm. And because that Boston scene, this is like the late 70s, 78, 79, 80, the Boston scene was taken off. That's when the cars were discovered. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of bands were being formed, like the Del Fuegos. Right. So a bunch of my friends ended up working with and knowing those guys, and I ended up sort of witnessing the scene. Now, the cars became very famous. Mm-hmm. Aerosmith was already famous. Uh, there were various bands like Mission of Burma. Uh, you know, uh, the Del Fuegos became somewhat you know, well-known. Mm-hmm. But there were a lot of bands that were uh, supposed to be huge, and they ended up not being huge. Now, yeah. The ones I witnessed because my friends were in them and I was backstage and I was at the gigs, it was the same old argument that almost every band has, which is the lead singer is the star. The lead guitar player hates the lead singer. (laughs) The bass player hates them both because he gets no attention. And the drummer kind of hates everybody because he thinks the band's going to break up. Right. And they're all morons. Right. All those are great. The drummer, I agree, is is always underrated. He doesn't care about anybody. He's just banging the beat of his own drummer. For years, I, I had that idea in my head. As we got older, some of these guys became... Terrifically successful musicians, but again, you wouldn't know who they are. Right. But like our tech advisor, the drum uh, guy on the on the show, uh, he's also the drummer on in my band when I do live gigs. Right. But he's been a, a well known musician. He plays multi instrumental uh, stuff. Right. He's been in Ozzy Osbourne's band. He's been on some of the greatest records ever known and made, and he's produced some of the. But you wouldn't know who he is because everybody he's involved with is the front man. So now oh, he's right. a he's a very happy guy, and that's. He's very uh, successful and happy to make a living doing it. Right. But there are certain other guys I know who are like, you know, we could have been huge if it was. It's always the lead singer. It's always <laughs> the lead singer. And I thought, right. this is going to be really interesting to play a guy that didn't make it. And a couple of guys I knew in New York, talented guys, had basically gotten into their own way. And now when they were hitting 50, they were like blaming everybody else. That could have been us. Mm-hmm. You know, on the show, my character says, Greg Dooley stole my vibe. Right. And Dave uh, Grohl, you know, stole my essence. And, like, it's all these guys from his generation. Right. And I, and I met a few of those guys, and I was like, this is an interesting character to play. Because what if this guy, this 50-year-old bitter guy, ended up discovering that he has a daughter who can sing? Mm-hmm. So once his daughter goes, Dad, I can sing, and 
I want to be a rock and roll star. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's it's almost like he's pimping his daughter, but he's not. He really loves her. It's a shot at redemption. It's a shot at redemption. Right. And now the whole struggle is about whether or not she's going to make it. And it's that mixture of pride and envy that he has in her. Mm-hmm. And this season, one of the things that happens is, you know, her mother um, was played by Callie Thorne. She came back at the end of last year, and she was she had the reverse approach from uh, my character, Johnny. She wanted to protect her daughter from being in the rock and roll business because she thought it was not worth it. Right. Um, and so it's interesting because she comes back this year, and she starts to share my point of view, which is like maybe we can make some money off of her. And but it's what she wants to do. Right. You know, we're not forcing her to do it. Um, so that's where the this really a it's a story about a big dysfunctional family. This this band of guys that and girls just can't get away from each other. You know, it's a great show. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We didn't even talk about Ice Age, but my kids love Ice Age. Ice so Age Five. Ice Age July. Five. I used to joke that there was going to be an Ice Age Five. Now there is one. July twenty second, I think, is the date for that. <laughs> but that's a cash cow. I mean, that I'm sure it's a lot of fun, but it's also a gigantic hit. How could I you just know? I like Ray. Fun. I was, was with Ray Romano. Romano. Ray Romano was doing a concert. I did this benefit concert up in Boston every year for the Cam Neely. Cancer Foundation, yep. and uh, Ray hadn't been there in a few years, and he was there this year. Yeah. And it was right when they were the concert was on a Saturday night, and um, Ray was like, "Dude, uh, can you believe we're doing Ice Age Five? And I said, "What are we supposed to do when they call up and say they want to make another?" We go, "No, right? You know what we're I mean? out. We think the story I, went I said, as far I as I said, it dude. It's, I said we can get to Ice Age Nine. It'll be like our great grandchildren. <laughs> you know what I mean? Who knows? It's a legacy." I wish we could smoke some cigarettes right now and, and sing together. No cure for cancer. I still have the CD somewhere at home. If I had prepared, I would have had you sign it here for me. But that taught me who Sam Peckinpah was. Because there's the oh, one yeah, scene you go, yeah, Lee yeah. Marvin and Sam Peckinpah. Yeah. And go, Who's this Sam Peckinpah? Oh, the Wild Bunch. This movie kicks ass. Oh, right. yeah, right. I forgot I called him out. You help with like, film history for guys like oh, me. Oh, my God. Lee Marvin. See, I'm not blank. just a comedian. I'm a professor. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Dennis Leary here on Cinephile, the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast. Thanks, man. You're welcome. Actor Showcase. I love this. Stan's giving us the big one here. We're going to the Legends Division. Uh, it normally gives me a few options. I think you throw it Hank, Streep, and Nicholson. So I think you're feeling like we got to go with a heavy hitter here. I feel, yes, and I think we need to mix in a female eventually. Yeah, I did notice that. We had that nice review here on uh, Front Row for those that work at ESPN. And she was asking about my favorite actors, Shannon. And I went through all of them. She's like, how about some women? I'm like, you're right. It's a little too slanty with the De Niro, Pacino, DiCaprio. Okay, I got it. A Meryl few Street. weeks ago, I was pushing for Julia Roberts, and you mocked me. I just wanted a Pelican <laughs> brief mention, and you couldn't even do it for me. Uh, we're going to have Stanzik do Denzel Washington's Actress Showcase one day, because that is his favorite actor. Now, listen, I love Denzel Washington, obviously. Malcolm X, Glory, among my favorites. I do think he's made a lot of trash, and I think Stanzik once said he's never made a bad movie, which is what I Until I, I saw the movie Fallen, <laughs> which is horrendous. My comment was always, I've never seen a bad Denzel movie. American Gangster wasn't good either. Oh, He's had some dreckle. Deja Oof. Vu was bad. Uh, virtuosity with Russell Crowe. Let's move on. All right, we'll slam Denzel another time. Uh, five to one, and Sanjic has correctly pointed out, because the McConaughey was a miss. I was going with the best movies they've been in, but I think it's very tricky. This is their best performances. So Jack Nicholson's five best performances. We're going from five until one. Number five will go with A Few Good Men. Tim Kirchin, who shockingly has actually listened to this podcast before, if I don't put A Few Good Men in there, it's one of his favorite movies, he'll never speak to me again on baseball tonight. So number five is that. Simply for the fact, could you picture anybody else playing Colonel Nathan Jessup? And that's where I go, you know what? He embodies exactly what you'd expect, uh, that type of authoritarian, take-no-prisoners, military guy in charge, and that whole courtroom scene. 
Sometimes scenes, I think, become overblown, and maybe in our memory they become bigger than they are. If you go back and watch that scene, it still has the same fireworks it did back then. You want me on that wall. You need me on that wall. Like it, Aaron Sorkin is such a great writer, and Nicholson did an amazing job with that. I believe I read one or maybe two takes. I think it might – that scene may have been one take, and Rob Reiner goes, all right, one more for coverage, but that was awesome, which never happens. For those who are unaware of filmmaking – 10 takes, 12 takes. Spielberg famously won't do more than five. Eastwood will do six or seven. Marty will do 30. I mean, if you have to. I mean, some of these guys are nuts. David O. Russell one time did like 67 takes during Silver Lion's playbook. And Bradley Cooper's like, can I just get a gun next time along with the Oscar that I'm trying to win? All right, so number five there is A Few Good Men. Number four is As Good As It Gets. Nicholson was fantastic in this movie. Um, playing a guy who's suffering with OCD, and it's a really sweet film. It's him and Helen Hunt. Nicholson won his third Oscar for it. Helen Hunt also won the Oscar for it. James L. Brooks wrote the script. Greg Kinnear's in the movie playing the next-door neighbor. And the greatness of Nicholson's performance is he plays a guy who's so unlikable. Um, you know, he's homophobic, and he's racist, and he's a jerk, and he's uh, you know a misanthropic guy uh, who just suffers from this OCD and just wants to go get his pancakes and wants Helen Hunt to serve him, and the fork's going to be a certain way, and he, and that's about it. And he hates Greg Kinnear's dog, and there's just not a lot to root with this guy. But yet he's this amazing uh, writer of, like, romance novels, which is something you only see in the movies. I don't think a character like Nicholson and As Good As It Gets would have that much hate, and then he, apparently he's this great romance novelist. But I'll forgive the film that issue because he's so funny in the movie, and especially the way that – he plays such a likable cat. I mean, the way that he's just so mean-spirited to Greg Kinnear, and yet he becomes endearing is part of Nicholson's gift. I think my favorite line in film is in that movie, one of the characters asks him, how do you write women so well? <laughs> I think and, of a man. And take away reason and accountability. <laughs> I mean, that that is Jack Nicholson, like a likable cat if there ever was one. There's a ton of great lines like that. Stanzik's right. There's a really sweet scene, too. You know, after he, he's going to go get a sports coat in this restaurant, he's trying to finally impress Helen Hunt. And he goes in there, he tells his story, but he goes, I hate pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate about pills. He goes, the day after you came to my house and you, you know, whatever. She's like, I know. She showed up and she was like, I'm never going to sleep with you. And then he says, you know, I started taking the pills. And she goes, I really don't get how that's a compliment for me. And he plays the scene beautifully. He kind of looks down and he goes, you make me want to be a better man. And she says, that might be the nicest compliment of my life. And he goes, well, maybe I overshot a little, but I was aiming it just enough to make sure you wouldn't go out. It's a really great scene. Make sure you watch As Good As It Gets. That's number four on our list of the top Nicholson movies. Number three is about Schmidt. Alexander Payne, one of the great directors out there, when he cashed Jack Nicholson, they started going through some scenes, and Nicholson was kind of hamming it up. And Alexander Payne pulled him aside, and he goes, mm, listen, I, I, um, this isn't really working so far. And Jack's like, what do you mean? He goes, well, the way you're playing this, like, you know, he's this old widower. Like, he's a very sad, depressed guy who can't deal with the fact that his daughter's getting married, and, you know, his wife has passed away, and you got to play it straight. Like, there's humor in there with all of Alexander Payne's films, like Sideways and Nebraska. You know, they're funny, but they're awfully sad as well. And Nicholson paused and smiled and goes, oh, you actually want me to act? I haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> he, he's just been playing this archetype of Jack Nicholson for so long, these wild over-the-top guys. He's like, oh, I can do that. Sorry, I just got to brush it off. The, the cobwebs are a little over, overwhelming here. And then in About Schmidt, he gives a very, for him, a subtle, nuanced performance of a guy who's dealing with the death of his wife, but then finds out she was cheating on him. She's completely furious with his dead wife. He goes after his best friend, who's the one who had the affair. The daughter's getting married to this absolute loser. He's like, God, he's so depressed. And there's this hilarious subplot of Deer and Dugu because he's writing this African child that he is giving money to, and he figures it's the one good thing I can do here is send money to this kid. He sends these incredible letters to Ndugu. 
that it's like this kid is like seven years old living in an impoverished country, and he's like writing about his life and his emotions, and it's it's so absurd and it's so funny. The ending, one of the great endings ever of a Jack Nicholson movie for sure, and of the last twenty five years, this guy's so depressed, he's so down. That ending of that movie. Alexander Payne's got a gift for great innings, and that definitely is one of them. Number two, we'll go with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Iconic. I mean, the, the, again, you can't picture anybody else but Nicholson in that movie. Have you read the Ken Kesey book, by the way, at Sanzik? No, I heard it's an excellent book, but a rarity for some I've talked to. They say the movie's actually better than the book. The book is, you know, a little bit intense, and it goes very much into detail about what life is like in the mental hospital. But Milos Forman did an incredible job with the film, of course, uh, you got Nurse Ratched in there. She's, she's awfully despicable, but Danny DeVito in the movie as well. But Nicholson really has that anarchistic, you know, rebellious spirit. Let's take no prisoners. Let's get out of this stuff. And it ends up being really heartbreaking what happens to his character as he's trying to lead all these guys uh, in their revolution. And number one is Chinatown, uh, one of the best film noirs of all time. Polanski is such a great director. He's never done a better film than that. Um, Nicholson is J.J. Giddies, is trying to get to the bottom of the truth. And it's uh, if you're a screenwriter, an aspiring writer, Watch Chinatown, because that Robert Town script is one of the all-time best. Uh, if you ever go to any sort of screenwriting class or you talk to people in the writing, they'll say, oh, my goodness, that Robert Town script, the way that's plotted and the characters, and it's a, a film noir and a mystery, and you got the femme fatale, and you got a private eye, and his nose gets cut up by Polanski in a cameo. Well, what's it about? It's about water. It's about drought. It's about the most simple thing. It's set in California in the 40s, absolute masterpiece. Uh, there's a couple of stunning scenes in there that if you've never seen it, you're absolutely blown away by. So those are the five best films of Jack Nicholson. Number one is Chinatown. Number two is One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Number three is about Schmidt. Number four is As Good As It Gets. Number five is A Few Good Men. Missing the cut. Go ahead, tweet us. At Adnan ESPN, tell me what an idiot I am. I left off The Shining, Terms of Endearment, The Departed, Prissy's Honor, and plenty more, including The Bucket List. Actors in three words. Once again, Stanzik, very smart move. We went from 10 to 5. The buzz is building. People love three words. Mark Simon, uh, who's won the baseball tonight, researchers for a long time. Now he's just has some role in the research department. He's like a senior researcher. I don't know his exact title. He just wrote a Yankees book. He's now using three words all the time. Like He went and saw a Nationals game, and he tweets, hey, here's my three words in honor of Adnan Burke. So, so people are loving it. It's become America's favorite game. Three words. Give us the actors. It was very controversial at first, and now I'm glad America's on board. That's yeah, great. It's back. Uh, we're going heavy hitters again. Tom Hanks. First one is Jimmy Stewart, because he's a modern-day Jimmy Stewart. Um, another word would be everyman. He's that guy that is always the quintessential everyman. He is the one that represents America for our times. There's nobody better than you picture in that role. Along with that, decency is the, always the word of Tom Hanks. You don't really picture him as a vile guy. He's always a, a decent, noble character who, who wants to do the good thing. But having said that, the third word is safe. I think too many of his choices sometimes are a little bit too, to borrow the McConaughey phrase again, drenched in nobility. I'd like to see him take some chances once in a while. Even though I wasn't a huge Training Day fan, and Denzel certainly should have won an Oscar for it, I like the fact he got down and dirty and played a criminal. I love uh, Morgan Freeman in his first major films in a movie called Street Smart, playing a badass. I, you know, I, I wish Hanks once in a while. When I heard he was doing Road to Perdition, like he's playing a gangster, I'm like, all right, good. Hanks, a little more foul mouth, tough, edgy. It's like, no, no, again, he's just a, a sweet, decent gangster trying to take care of his kids. It's not that he isn't a great actor, but I think he's a little safe for this role. He's safe in 2016, but he did Philadelphia <laughs> and Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, I don't think, was risky. Philadelphia was risky for its time, because you're right. AIDS a subject matter. Doing something like that head on. Forrest Gump, that was telegraphed for Academy Award success. You just listen to, to borrow the Robert Downey Jr. phrase from Tropic Thunder. If you always play a half retard, you'll be fine. That's that's his quote, not mine. Anna Kendrick. Anna Kendrick going to go with Perky. The first thing he pictures her just all bubbly and perky and stuff. 
Singer. Didn't know she actually sings as well, so she's got some talent. The third word is limited. I, I don't know how much Anna Kendrick is bringing to the table beyond being perky, a singer, and limited. Did you see the movie Up in the Air? Up in the Air, she's great. I was going to say, that's the only great film I'd say she's done. I'm not familiar with the filmography of Pitch Perfect. Your loss. <laughs> All right, Mark Ruffalo. You'll love this one. Idiosyncratic. I mean, you look at Ruffalo, and he's always got like these little kind of ticks and idiosyncrasies. And he is so much fun to watch in the movie Spotlight, which is a very heavy watch and a great drum. And if you haven't seen it, go watch it. Deserve a best picture. But he's always got something going on. I love that about him. I just think he's got all these kind of quirks. And I don't, I don't know if he's like that in person. I've seen him, you know, on talk shows. Not that that's a real reflection of what somebody's like, but he seems a little less like that. But I think he's got those idiosyncrasies. He's always kind of scruffy, which I like. Even when he was in the Hulk, he's always kind of just looking like a bit of a mess. And the third word is mumbler. Uh, his, his his really good film that really kind of put him on the map uh, was You Can Count on Me, Kenneth Lonergan's film with Laura Linney. And some of the reviews said he was like a modern-day Brando. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're calling a new actor and a modern-day Brando the greatest actor of all time? But they're referring to the fact he's always kind of mumbling in his movies. It's just kind of a, an odd thing about him. Idiosyncratic, scruffy, and a mumbler. Melissa McCarthy. Well, she's bombastic. I mean, she's definitely over the top and loud and having a good time. And, and I guess for some people that's pretty funny. And, and listen. Uh, Bridesmaids, she's very funny. And certainly the scene in the, in the sink there, pretty good. So bombastic is one. The second word, though, I think is more appropriate. It's tired. Like, I, I got it. You're just loud and overweight. And I was thinking typecast. Yeah, typecast. Is, you know, let's replace that. Bombastic and typecast. The third one I'm going to go with is Rich. Because not only has she made these movies, which have actually done a ton of money, and she's got some of the box office gross, she's got a hit TV show as well. So Melissa McCarthy, for someone who I don't think does a whole lot beyond being typecast, she's also filthy rich. Surprised you didn't say around. <laughs> Lastly, we'll do Michael Keaton. When she sits around the house, she sits around the house. Uh, Michael Keaton's three words. The first one is comeback. My, my, my guy's back. I mean, Michael Keaton was such a good actor for so long. And then you see him like pop up in Jackie Brown. And you go, okay, Michael Keaton's in this. Then there's like a decade of nothing. He's in a movie called Game Six. Stanzik is a baseball guy. You'll like this one. It's based on a play. And it's about a guy who's a diehard Red Sox fan. He's a playwright. He's got a play opening. And he's all fretful because of what's happening with the World Series. There's parallels here with Birdman. Everyone kept talking about Birdman, the fact that it's about a washed-up actor trying to get a comeback with a you know independent film that means a lot to him. In the, in the movie, obviously, independent play. But famous for playing a superhero. That was Batman. Now he's playing Birdman. But Game 6 is also along those lines of a guy who's trying to rekindle his lost magic. It's actually not a bad movie. But my point is, he was off the, the radar. Nobody knew what the hell Michael Keaton was up to. And he goes roaring back to life with Birdman. You don't have to do it now, but at some point in this podcast, can you explain the ending of Birdman to me? Oh. So I, I'll do it now. I, I, I said this. I said I thought the movie had third act issues. And Ryan Rosillo, one of our friends, of course, does a great job. We're going to get him a cinephile at some point. He's eager to get on. I don't think he's listening to a full episode. Get in line, Rosillo. Yeah, we got a lot of good heavy hitters here. Dennis Leary was huge. Um he goes, I don't think they had third act issues. I think you're being hard on it. I think it had like three-minute issues. Like the last three minutes isn't good. I said, no, no, he should have killed himself on stage. Now, I know that wouldn't happen ever in a film. But listen, I get with the fact with major big market you know, studio movies, go, we can't do that. But this was an indie movie. Alejandro Gonzalez, Enrico, the director's taking chances. Like, be bold. Like, God, It's all about magic realism. The guy walks around in his underwear in Times Square. He should kill himself on that stage. It'd be dark. Perfect It'd be great. Black Swan, Aronofsky, gutsy ending. She kills herself at the end. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, this is the movie you're going for. Then why? Oh, no. Well, this ends up. He actually ends up being a bird because he looks in the mirror and his nose is like a beak. And when he jumps out the window and his daughter sees him, you see her look up for a second like he's flying. And then she kind of looks down. So you can either say he jumped to his death, which I don't think is the case. I think because the movie dips into a lot of magic realism, Michael Keaton at the end has actually morphed and become Birdman. I wish I didn't ask. <laughs> 
third word is eyebrows. He's got the best eyebrows along with Nichols. It's always got the arched eyebrows working all the time. Michael Keaton. We love him. Those are the three words. Come back, Birdman, and eyebrows. Streaming suggestions. All right, on Netflix, check out Back to the Future. I think it's nothing less than the greatest family film of all time. I mean, The Enchantment of the Sea Dance, Michael J. Fox, I'm Late for School. Uh, Christopher Lloyd should have been nominated for an Oscar. He's so great as Dr. Emmett Brown. 1.21 gigawatts! Um, there's so many funny lines in that movie, and yet it's got a lot of heart. You know, it's a really sweet story about trying to connect your parents back together. Earth Angel, Crispin Glover. Uh, there's a lot to love about Back to the Future. I'm sure you've seen it, but go watch it again. It's on Netflix. Also, Insomnia is a movie that I love. Al Pacino. I can't wait to do the actor's showcase Pacino. It would be impossible to do only five. But Insomnia, for all those that rip him, and I get the fact the last decade and a half has been rather lean for Al. The last great performance I'd say he's given was Insomnia in 2002. Lisa Schwartzbaum, who's a former great critic for Entertainment Weekly, said um, something like he's been sleepwalking through a lot of his roles, but Insomnia, Pacino, the great actor, is wide awake. It was a great line. He's so... Um, rooted in the reality of a fact of a guy who can't sleep. If you haven't seen it, he's in Nightmute, Alaska. He's a cop who's investigating a murder, and he's got a, a backstory of where he's a little shady trying to bury some evidence. So that's weighing on him. And the collection of the fact that there's this guilt and concern and paranoia in his mind and the fact that there is never darkness there. We're taking a trip one day, me and you. And I, I would love to go to a place just because it's so freaky. It's never dark. And so he can't get a nap in. He can't get any sort of sleep. There's no... Uh, rest from this situation. There's no respite from the fact that his mind is working overdrive and the fact that he could be going to prison for tampering evidence and the fact that he's trying to find this killer who's played by Robin Williams, one of his best performances. The beauty of this is Pacino sometimes can be, you know, a little bit too robust. Here, he's just kind of weighed down and you can feel the gravity of the situation. Robin Williams at times, who can be rather excessive and hyperactive, is very still and very calm. And he said that. He goes, when I was playing a killer, I didn't want to be one of these killers who was very showy. I wanted to just show how calm he was about the fact that he's just, you know, butchering these women. Hilary Swank's also in the movie, Academy Award winner. She's very good as somebody who looks up to Pacino. And Christopher Nolan, great director. We know him and love him for a lot of his films like uh, Memento, going way back to that. And, of course, his major films like the Dark Knight trilogy. But there's a great scene on the floating logs, actually. It's a great chase sequence where um, Pacino's chasing Robin Williams. And it shows that Christopher Nolan can not only have really uh, emotional and thinking films, uh, like Interstellar, but also have a great chase sequence, which he shows in Insomnia. The third movie to recommend is The Lovely Bones. Now, this was a misfire because the book is beloved. Peter Jackson did the movie, and it got tepid reviews. Uh, box office was disappointing, and I thought the movie was all right. Again, I hadn't read the book, so I had no reference point. But Stanley Tucci is great in it. You talk about underrated actors. He's one of those guys I love, like uh, Giamatti and William H. Macy and Mark Ruffalo. Like, Tucci's one of those guys. When he's in the movie, when he was in the spotlight, I go, oh, there we go. Like, Tucci's in the movie, perfect. This is already going to be great. He's got a great skin in spotlight when he says to Ruffalo, he goes, what are you, Armenian? Or, no, what are you, Italian? Ruffalo goes, no, I'm Portuguese. He goes, I'm Armenian. They don't want us here. We got another Armenian at the Boston Globe, Steve Kirchin, who was Tim Kirchin's cousin. Um, Matucci plays the killer in this movie. I disagree. Ty Burr is a great film critic. Uh, he writes for the Boston Globe. He said, uh, the lovely Bones is an example of a very good actor in Stanley Tucci giving a very bad performance, which I disagree. Tucci was nominated for an Oscar. His point was that he thought Tucci was too mannered and too effective. And he's got that terrible comb over and the way he's mumbling at times. He goes after, Hey, you're that salmon girl, right? He thought it was too much. I thought he was great. I thought he was riveting and stone cold. And so lovely bones is an option as well on Hulu. The aviator, of course, we love Marty Scorsese stories coming up momentarily. 
uh, a great film. For those that criticize it sometimes and say, all right, too many gangster movies, too many crime films. Well, there's none of that in The Aviator. It is an old school Hollywood epic. It's about Howard Hughes who who dared to dream. And, and later the film focuses on the OCD and just how strange and unhinged this guy was. But the movie really shows uh, filmmaking. that shows the beauty of aviation. And when it crashes, it plummets. That scene where DiCaprio crashes is just incredible filmmaking. Uh, Leo's in it, obviously. But Kate Blanchett also won an Oscar for it. Um, really good cast, including Alan Alda as the villain in that. Glory. You know, Free City of Jones was such a disappointing Civil War movie. The best Civil War movie for me is Glory. Denzel Washington, never been better. Uh, amazing. Just so much resolve and that that's, those steely eyes and so much fire in there uh, as this former slave who's now fighting for the Union Army. Morgan Freeman has a lot of gravitas in the film. Andre Brower, who I love, uh, he plays this guy, Thomas, who's uh, very much an intellectual. And he kind of talks very properly and he kind of gets... You know, he gets a hard time there from Denzel and the other guys. They think, oh, you know, you're black. We're not really black because you're proper and you went to a good school. And he plays it amazing because he's trying to do the right thing here and fight for the union and fight for uh, black people's freedom. And yet he's not really welcome by the guys that he's fighting with. Matthew Broderick uh, plays the uh, the colonel in charge of them. A little quibble with him. I don't think he's great in the movie. He's, he's really miscast at the time. You go, Matthew Broderick's really young to play this guy. Um, but I'm sure the real-life story is amazing, too. One of the best soundtracks ever. People ask me about great movie music. James Horner, the soundtrack for Glory is as good as it gets. Horner passed away last year. And people said, oh, he's the Titanic composer. I don't know. He's the Glory composer. Go listen to that music. Um, I believe it's the Boys of Harlem, the Choir Boys of Harlem. It's an incredible soundtrack. So uh, Glory, directed by Ed Zwick. And also Train Spotting. Uh, that's a drug movie from Danny Boyle. It's funny. It's entertaining. Uh, the first 10 minutes of Train Spotting are fantastic. I mean, it's just you and McGregor running. You've got Iggy Pop, Lust for Life. You know, it's a bunch of these druggy lowlifes in England. Um, and then, the, obviously, the second half kind of shows the harrowing, dis- harrowing descent. Uh, there's one scene where he goes into a toilet bowl. I mean, there's there's some wild stuff in there. Danny Boyle really pushes the envelope. Later won an Oscar for Slumdog Millionaire, uh, which won Best Picture. But uh, Train Spotting is an early film from him. If you like British crime films and that kind of gritty style, you'll like Train Spotting. Last three for you, Amazon Prime, Best in Show, uh, somebody tweeted the other day, what's the best Christopher Guest movie aside from Spinal Tap? I would say Best in Show, primarily just for Fred Willard. I mean, he's, he's sending up Joe Gargiola there with how how, how ridiculous these dog announcers are. It, it is so funny. And and the guy, I don't know his name, the actor who's with him, the English guy is so good because he's playing it straight. He's like, that's a shih tzu. Will's like, wait, what's that? Wait, a shih tzu. Oh, my God, that must be kind of fun. And there's one dog who's like, I think they should put like a hat on him, like a Sherlock Holmes hat and a pipe. I think that may be pretty good. And, of course, at one point, famously, he says to the guy, he goes, how many do you think I can bench? He's like, why do you go, seriously, how much do you think I can bench? He's just so ridiculous in that movie. Whole cast. Eugene Levy has two left feet. At one point, he has to come out with the dog. And they go, is that guy got two left feet over there? <laughs> really funny movie. Uh, Casino, I don't love it as much as, you know, other Scorsese diehards do. The first half of it's incredible because it feels like a documentary. Um, you know, De Niro, a lot of voiceover work. He's explaining the way Vegas is set up and the way gambling is set up. The second half, I, I hate to say, I felt a little repetitive considering Goodfellas came out in 1990. Casino came out in 95. All right, Pesci's always entertaining and funny, but he's another psychotic guy. Um, you know, De Niro's trying to keep it all together. Uh, Sharon Stone's over the top and did, did, was nominated for an Oscar, arguably never been better. But I thought the second half kind of felt a little more predictable. But the first half, I really enjoyed a Casino. And if you like gambling movies, and obviously if you like Marty Mob movies, uh, the scene with Frank Vincent uh, getting his comeuppance against Pesci is a really good one. And lastly, The Shining. That wasn't one of the five films that me and Stanzik put in there for Nicholson, the Actors Showcase, but really creepy film. Um, Kubrick, when it comes to like atmospheric style and that cold clinical feeling you get when watching his movies, The Shining is a great one. Horror film, Red Rum, scene with Nicholson and the bartender, Here's Johnny. Uh, so much memorable about The Shining. So check it out on Amazon Prime. 
a Scorsese story. We never actually checked the tape stains. Last time, did I say I was going to tell a Raging Bull story and then told a Goodfellas story, or was that you just guessing? No, that's exactly what happened. Okay, so I'll tell a Raging Bull story this time. Correct that. Brawl has been waiting a couple of weeks. So Scorsese doesn't like sports at all, which people always say, what if you met him one day? I'm like, well, I wouldn't mention the fact I'm a sportscaster because he has said famously, I hate sports. I have no interest in it. He grew up with asthma uh, in Little Italy. You always see in his movies, there's this recurring theme of a kid looking outside. In Goodfellas, you see that as a kid, he's looking out, watching all the gangsters on the stoop. And that's what Marty used to do. Um, in the film Hugo, which I love, uh, there's a scene of the kid in the train station. He's always watching the kids from upstairs, and that's that's who Marty was as a kid. He was always upstairs because he was so sick, and you know he's asthmatic. He's just always watching, observing, and I'm watching a ton of movies because his dad would always take him to the movies, and that's what I think what really shaped him in his mind. He was always so observant. So in Raging Bull, De Niro comes to him and goes, "Listen, we got to make this movie." And he goes, "Listen, I I don't I hate sports. Like I know nothing about boxing. There's nothing interesting here." And De Niro really wanted to make it. He goes, "No, I'm telling you, this is the kind of film we have to make. It's so important that we do this." And it was based in a book, Jake LaMotta's book, and, and he just goes, I don't, I don't get it. Now, Scorsese was going through a really difficult time, uh, divorce, cocaine abuse, ended up being in the hospital. And, he, and he, in his own words, he goes, I, I nearly died. Like, it was, it was awful how bad it was. And I was absolutely exhausted. I was absolutely spent. I was just so focused on my work and my life was spinning out of control. And it was at that point that I realized I could make the film of Jake LaMotta. And De Niro came to the hospital again. He's like, listen, we got to make this. And I said, okay, you know what? Now I can do it because I couldn't understand the hook of boxing and why someone would want to be a boxer, but I understood the hook of self-destructiveness, and I had been through that myself now, and I got the fact that Jake LaMotta has the sadomasochistic behavior, and his self-esteem is so low. Sansa can help me with this. They say in Catholicism, kind of like the Madonna horror complex, that he feels like he hates himself so much um, that the only person that can be with him is either a Madonna or a whore, and I guess that's what Scorsese kind of relied on for that, and he goes, that's where we kind of came at with the De Niro character. He goes that... You know, he just he hates himself so much and he feels that he should be punished. And again, this goes with Marty's very Catholic views of salvation and sin and redemption. So essentially, because he has so much guilt, he goes in the ring and he, he wants to be beaten up for his sins and what a horrible person he is. And that's how he tries to find salvation and find redemption as well. But it's a it's an incredible movie. And it's a really good reminder of how sometimes you you're not sure what you want until it takes a little bit of time to circle back and figure it out. And I think if. Scorsese just had kept saying no to Raging Bull. He wouldn't have made one of the greatest films of all time. And that's not just me. You ask anybody who loves movies, um, I believe AFI, the American Film Institute, has one of the top ten films of all time. Sight and Sound, which is a very prestigious film magazine. Every ten years they do the top movies of all time, and Raging Bull always ranks in the top ten, along with Citizen Kane and Casablanca and Goodfellas and all those major films. So Raging Bull. It took a while for Marty to figure out why he had to make it, but once he did, it's an incredible movie. So thanks so much for listening to Cinephile. Uh, on a somber note, a couple of passings here from the film world. Michael Cimino, the director, died. Um, he made the film The Deer Hunter, which is a great movie about Vietnam. Um, that scene, the Russian roulette scene with Christopher Walken and the Deer Hunter, go ahead and YouTube that. It's an amazing scene. Cimino, unfortunately, made also a film called Heaven's Gate, which is one of the biggest bombs in film history. So it always goes intertwined. And unfortunately, when he passed away, everyone goes, oh, the director of The Deer Hunter won an Oscar and also made Heaven's Gate, which was a colossal misfire. But uh, go back and watch um, The Deer Hunter because uh, De Niro, Christopher Walken, a uh, really special film. Meryl Streep, John Cazale, that's where they met on that film as well. And also Abbas Kiristami, who's an Iranian filmmaker. Scorsese, a huge fan of his. In fact, wrote an appreciation for him in Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. He just passed away as well. He won the Palme d'Or for a film called Taste of Cherry, uh, which was actually banned in Iran because they thought that the film was promoting suicide. And Kiristami said, no, it's actually an appreciation for life. It's about a man in Tehran 
who is uh, looking for somebody to help bury him once he kills himself. And Kiristami said, no, no, the, the film is dark and serious, but the, ultimately it's trying to be life-affirming. Also a film called uh, Where's the Friend's Home? Uh, the Wind Will Carry Us. Uh, Kiristami is one of those filmmakers. If you love world cinema and foreign films, and particularly he was at the forefront of the Iranian new wave in the late 90s. Those films really started to get traction uh, here stateside. So check out his films. It's a real loss for the film world. Uh, he was a really, really great director. Also did a movie called Certified Copy with Juliette Binoche. So he did have some films with uh, English speaking as well. All right, that'll do it for us. So for my producer, Dan Stanzik, I'm Adnan Burke. Thanks for listening to Cinephile, and I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app.